Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of Proverbs. We will today be looking at some of the introductory material. I don't really have an agenda for how long that's going to last. It's kind of going to depend upon your interest and/or your eyes glazing over. So, feel free to let me know, even if that's non-verbally. Uh, if you've had enough, we'll do a bit of introductory material, get our bearings in regard to Proverbs without getting into any esoteric theories about it, hopefully. And then, time permitting, we'll simply start to jump into the text itself. Before we do these things, let's begin with an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You will want to have a Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, you could probably very quickly download a Bible app, which might be a good thing anyway. Otherwise, I know we have some up front here, so you can sneak up on the side, and you won't even show up on the camera to be memorialized forever as the person who forgot your Bible that Sunday. As you all know, I highly recommend the Lutheran Study Bible. I checked the prices this morning, and one of these can be procured for anywhere from a half to one full tank of gas. <laughs> When you put it that way, we should all have several. But the other thing is, and I tell the young people this frequently, especially those who are single and looking to be married. When you carry one of these around, it's plus ten points attractiveness. <laughs> Instantly become more attractive, and so, of course, that increases if you also carry in your other arm, or you know, both together is fine. If you want to flex a little, I understand. But if you carry around the Book of Concord as well, then you've got, then you've got both. So I can't highly commend enough uh, the Lutheran Study Bible. It's a world-class Bible. It's a world-class resource. Is it perfect? No. Do I agree with every single footnote? No. But when are we ever going to achieve that? Save for our Lord Jesus Himself teaching us in the new heavens and the new earth.、Uh, until then, this is as good as we have. If you do have a Lutheran Study Bible, turn to page 995. That's going to take us to the introductory material listed here by the editors in regard to the Book of Proverbs. If you don't have it, just open up to Proverbs, and you'll have to listen in as best you can. I often, at the beginning of these studies, like to share with you any resources or primary resources I'm, I'm using in terms of commentaries. And materials that are outside of the scriptures, and the main one that I'm using is again from our Concordia Commentary series, just world-class commentaries. But there's a—I mean, you really want to be into it if you're going to fork out the money for this. And a lot of it's original language stuff, and it's quite technical and complex. 
But I do like to um, recommend this for those of you who do want to dig uh, more deeply. This is by Andrew Steinman, a professor at our St. Louis Seminary. He'll be leading us along and adding his voice, so to speak, as we study here collectively and together. If you look at page uh, 995, the timeline provided at the top, you will see on the left-hand side, 1009 BC to 970 BC. This is the reign of David, basically a 40-year reign. And it's a nice benchmark, too, in terms of just getting a real general biblical chronology in mind. David is one of the easiest to remember. Because if you're like me, the Old Testament's constantly blurring together. But if you just kind of pin David at 1,000, you're about right. right? So 1,000 years later comes Christ. And of course, with David pinned at 1,000 then, you know something about the era of the kings. Because David was which of the three kings, first, second, or third, chronologically? Second, yeah. So you know that Saul preceded David, and then David, and then, of course, Solomon, who we're going to be looking at here, um, the author of uh, most of Proverbs. And so then you know something about the United Kingdom and the kings. You know what came before that, before Israel requested a king. And did God and the other prophets see that as a good idea when they wanted a king, when they wanted to be just like other nations? New, and it didn't go very well. So we know that prior to that were the judges. So then you can think of the judges in Scripture. And of course, the judges are ruling over uh, Israel, the promised land. And how did they come about the promised land? Via the conquest of Joshua. And how could they even get to the promised land? Well, they had to come out of Egypt. And now you're at Moses, and see how you can just kind of back your way into a nice biblical chronology just by remembering that David is around the year 1000. And then moving forward, too, you can think of David as being the second of the three kings under the United Kingdom. And then after Solomon, that kingdom divides in two, and so you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if you ever have a quiz during the divided kingdom, Was this king, doesn't matter if he was in the north or the south, was this king good or bad? You have a statistically wonderful chance if you just say bad. (laughs) I'm definitely showing my ignorance here, but off the top of my head, I can think of two good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. There may have been another here or there, but uh, Connie, any pop into your mind beyond that? Yeah, it's, um, it's bleak. It's bleak. And of course, then, if you wanted to just pin a couple more helpful dates as you move forward, you can think of the destruction of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians come down and wipe out the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom never comes back. That's typically dated at 722. So you're fast-forwarding about 300 years from David. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, gets captured by the Babylonians, temple destroyed. That's the end of Solomon's temple, as we'll talk about maybe in a minute here. Part of what Solomon got to do was build the temple of the Lord. 
his temple is destroyed, and, and if you place a date on that, it's usually dated either 587 or 586 B.C. And so now we're roughly five to 600 years out from the coming of Christ. So from the time of David forward, then, you can think of the prophets in the scriptures, the major prophets, um, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, for example. And you can think of the minor prophets, Joel, Amos, Zechariah. Why are they all prophesying? Because as the kingdoms have split, the apostasy increases. And so they're all crying out, judgment is going to come, judgment is going to come. And then it comes in these two forms, Assyria crushing the northern kingdoms that are never to return, and Babylon swallowing up the southern kingdom for a time until the temple can be rebuilt. And then as that temple, the second temple is being rebuilt, um, you have like Ezra and Nehemiah, that's those guys. And then you've got the intertestamental period, roughly 400 years, where there's nothing going on, at least in terms of the canon. There's actually lots going on. It's a rich history, and the promised land, as it were, changes hands under many, pagan, many different pagan rulerships and dynasties. But that's what all precedes, then, the coming of Jesus. And it's that second temple that Herod is so interested in adorning and causing to flourish so that he can present himself to everyone as a wonderful, faithful Jewish guy, which, of course, he isn't. Right? So that gives us a little bit of a backdrop. And again, I, I'm sorry to go off on this wild tangent, but, I, but wrapping your mind around a real basic <coughs> biblical chronology isn't as hard as it might seem. And I, one, of, one of, if not the key linchpin that you can use to do this, is David's dating right at 1000 BC. So returning to that timeline then, immediately after the reign of David, of course, is the reign of Solomon. Uh, Solomon uh, is the progeny of David and Bathsheba. Of course, the illicit child of David and Bathsheba um, is taken as an act of judgment and, and punishment, although you have to wonder for the child if it wasn't an act of mercy to be swept up into heaven and saved from all the nonsense that was quick to come in the royal life and in the life of Israel. Um, but of course, then David went on to marry and um, that union then with Bathsheba results in Solomon being born. So Solomon reigns, the dating there at the timeline, the top of the page, is 970 to 931 BC. And again, what do you roughly see? Roughly see a 40-year reign. So we see those recurrent 40s there. Um, Rehoboam is next. Now, he is Solomon's son, and very interesting because as Solomon writes the Proverbs, we're going to see uh, right off the bat that one of the major motifs is a father speaking to his son. We can think of that in a number of different ways, but personally for Solomon, no doubt this was part of his reflection, writing these things to Rehoboam. Do you recall, was Rehoboam very wise? No. 
you probably should have spent a little more time paying attention to the Proverbs and a little less time paying attention to his friends because uh, his friends definitely misled him. So Rehoboam um, becomes king and this quickly leads uh, to the division of Israel. And that's the next notch over. Um, again, look at the dating. 972, Rehoboam is born and roughly 40 years later, Israel is divided under Rehoboam. Okay, and then we go a big gap here. And why is going to become more clear? Uh, because Proverbs is one of two books, if you will, and I'm using that term pretty loosely, where the book itself identifies multiple authors. And so Proverbs is one, Psalms would be the other. And so within Proverbs, we're going to see parts that are attributed to, um, and we'll go through this maybe in some detail, this is where I'm going to watch for your eyes glazing over though, we're going to see parts that uh, Solomon himself wrote down, and then other things that, that appear to have come from other documents that then Hezekiah and friends go, hey, we found these things from Solomon. They're really smart. We should attach them to Proverbs. And so they're written, in a sense, they're written by or authored by uh, Solomon. He's the origin, but they're put in by Hezekiah and friends. So that's why uh, the reign of Hezekiah that is mentioned, you think, what on earth does that have anything to do with anything? Because if Solomon you know, reigned from 970 to 931, that's um, when he's penning Proverbs. So why do we need to go you know, roughly these 200 years into the future? And that's precisely because uh, Hezekiah, it, in all likelihood, is responsible for, even, for including even more of Solomon's Proverbs into the original writing. But in your study Bible, if you drop over to that right-hand column, you'll see the overview, and you'll see the authors listed. It, in fact, is more than just Solomon. You've got these other figures, Agur, Lemuel, and Lemuel's mother, and then an unnamed wise man. Or, yeah, unnamed wise men, plural, excuse me. And these all seem to be authors of various sections. This is a place where if you want to go get your PhD in some sort of Old Testament field, you can go set forward your theory of which part was written by who. And there with the dating on the right-hand column, you can see it's left very simple here out of necessity. 10th century BC for most of the book, late 8th or early 7th for some parts. And we can see the authorship on page 997, which maybe we'll do here in a minute, and then I'll, um, I'll supplement with some of the things from Steinman's commentary if I, if I feel like it will add some clarification. All right, let's simply um, look at the reading of Proverbs and the central theme. And I'll read this pretty quickly for you, but I do think it's valuable. It's a little artistic. That's how the editors begin. Clinking bits of silver, shouting merchants, and bleeding herds distract a young man as he passes through the streets of Jerusalem. He pauses to wonder at the piles of goods on display, bartered wildly by, shopkeeper, or by shoppers and shopkeepers. At the corner, he catches a whiff of myrrh and cinnamon, 
from where a sultry woman caresses the doorframe of her house. She winks and smiles. From the city gate, the young man hears the voice of one calling. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Above the clamor of Jerusalem's streets, King Solomon could see and reflect on the temptations of his subjects, temptations to which he himself succumbed. He saw clearly the need for instruction, for wisdom, that parents could pass on to their children and teachers could share with their students. The book of Proverbs is the result of Solomon's God-given wisdom, experience, and concern. And there you can see a reference to 1 Kings 3. The historical data we have on Solomon, of course, comes mostly from uh, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And in these texts, if you'll reflect, um, we learn much about Solomon, much about his wisdom and prowess. But you recall the origin of that wisdom. The Lord had said to him, um, ask for whatever you wish and I will grant it. And Solomon prayed for, specifically, if you were to get most narrow or detailed, he prayed for a hearing heart. A hearing heart. And that's roughly translated as wisdom. But I think the nuance there is important. Why Why does he pray for a hearing heart? Because the nature of wisdom shares this with all other things, that it has its origin in God and only comes to man as a gift of God. So one can't be independently wise. Wisdom doesn't derive from man, and it isn't sustained within man. Rather, wisdom derives from God, is given to man, and is sustained within man by God. So a hearing heart, being identical to wisdom, is to constantly be hearing God's word and making right judgment in according to that word. Does that make sense? So already, if we're paying attention, we've got a technical definition of wisdom going along here. Because if you just went out into the street and asked somebody, hey, what is wisdom? You know, you'd, you'd come up with all kinds of, I don't know, the stuff that the Buddhists think of or the mystics or, you know, wisdom is just being really smart or wisdom is knowing a lot of stuff or wisdom is remembering a lot of stuff. Um, the way the scripture is going to speak about wisdom is more technical and more concrete and uh, more accurate, objectively speaking, than whatever society or culture might think wisdom is. Wisdom is that which comes directly from God. Okay, then foolishness would be, you could think of foolishness immediately as an ignorance or a lack of this gift, an ignorance of the content of wisdom, a lack of this gift. So that could be a kind of foolishness. But you can also think of it as a rejection of that wisdom of God. That would also result in foolishness. In fact, it would result in a kind of worse foolishness because the will is involved in rejecting that wisdom of God. So here we can see then how it is that the scriptures will speak of the wise and foolish not in terms of intellectual power, not in terms of memory or 
ability to speak or any other such measurements that we might use or categories in which we might think. But it will talk about wisdom as receiving and believing the Word of God. So one could have the greatest intellect the world has ever known and be a fool, biblically speaking. Or, conversely, biblically speaking, one could have the lowest IQ of all human creatures and be wise. So that's the first thing that we learn. We're going to see this come right from the text, by the way, about the nature of wisdom. It's a gift from God. And it's not achieved by sitting cross-legged in a dark room, maybe some 75-cent incense going, (laughs) trying to tune into the spiritual frequencies and develop wisdom. Wisdom comes directly from God and from His Word. Okay? So, don't want to belabor that point because it's going to come up again and again. But that insight then, uh, from the introductory materials, which we're going to see from the text itself, is very helpful because Proverbs may be in the common understanding, even amongst Christians, this idea like, well, I want some good practical ideas, some solutions. And that's already a kind of distortion. This, this sense that Proverbs is filled with good ideas and maybe the world is filled with bad ideas and I want more good ideas than bad ideas and then that makes me wise versus foolish, like whatever content is in my head. All of this has some overlap with the truth but is distorted because the whole frame of Proverbs then is to receive the wisdom of the Lord presupposes that one believes in the Lord. So one who believes in the Lord and receives his word becomes, to one degree or another, wise. One who rejects the Lord and thus rejects his wisdom and word is de facto a fool. Has nothing to do with IQ or intellectual power or what's the other one these days? EQ. Is that right? IQ, EQ. Your uh, emotional quotient, your emotional intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that this helps clarify then, and it puts Proverbs in, and it should put Proverbs in, a familiar frame. Because the frame to us is going to be the wise is the saint of God, and the foolish is the unbeliever. Now, as a believer in God, and of course the triune God, the one true God, um, one can be wise and ever more wise. So the goal is to grow in wisdom. Similarly, to reject God is to be a fool, and one can grow in foolishness. Boy, I sure wish we had some societal examples of that. (laughs) Wouldn't it be amazing if we could think of a single thing going on in our culture where it started off dumb, but not all that dumb, and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse to where you're going. So this will be a lot of fun. But the point there being, then, the division between wisdom and foolishness is the division between faith and unbelief. And then we can grow in wisdom as God's people, um, even while those who reject him grow in foolishness. And we will be able to identify 
those parts of our sinful nature that have rendered us in one way, shape, or form foolish, and we can be enlightened by that wisdom of God and repent in the real sense of having a change of mind, a change of perception that then leads to a change in behavior. We'll talk more about that as we progress along. Okay, so the book of Proverbs is the result of Solomon's God-given wisdom, experience, and concern that then he is passing on to God's faithful people. So, down to the central theme. Proverbs emphasizes the central theme of Israelite wisdom. Quote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that is right out of chapter 1, verse 7. And of course, that is just the way that Proverbs talks about faith. Synonymous with the fear of the Lord is faith. Faith is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we find a root in that second clause as well. Again, this is from chapter 1, verse 7. Fools despise wisdom. That's not so clear. But they also despise instruction. Now, if you despise instruction, what's the presupposition? I don't need that. I already have it. I'm self-sufficient here. I don't need anything from you. So then, we can see here two different ways in which human beings are. And we can broadly stereotype these into believer-unbeliever, even though we recognize there's complexity involved on account of our flesh uh, as believers. But the believer is open to instruction. Why? Because we all realize we can't... any more than we can save ourselves, we can't. Can we come to knowledge or wisdom or understanding? We can't. So we are ever open to instruction from the Lord. But one who has rejected the Lord believes himself to be self-sufficient. I know all there is to know, or at least enough. I know as much as anybody else knows. I've done the research, which usually means they've Google searched it and got on Wikipedia for about 20 minutes. Um, But there's this closed-off sense of no one, least of all God, is going to tell me anything. And that, too, then, will give us a sense in which um, we can be open-minded in a proper way, always and ever open to God's instruction, humble, thinking even if I've got it right, I might not have it 100% right. Even if I've got it right, I might have it right in a wrong way, etc. But humble and open-minded... Not so open our brains fall out, but open specifically to God's word. That's the key. And there's an inherent humility. Whereas the fool who shuts himself off to that instruction and despises it falls into a solipsism, a spiritual solipsism, um, or the encurvatus in se, the Latin of the reformers, the self curved in on itself to where he then won't hear anything other than his own personal echo chamber, and then anyone else who already echoes his own thoughts. Gosh, I wish we had some different like social media platforms where we might observe this happening in real time. But such a person's mind is, in an objective sense now, 
closed because they will not receive instruction from the Lord. Therefore, they become Lord of themselves, God, their own God, and they'll only let in what they already agree with. That's, the, that's going to be the biblical definition of what we would call a closed mind. So you see how this is thesis and antithesis. There's always the mirror reflection between the wise one who fears the Lord and the foolish one who rejects the Lord. And we see that foundationally here in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What else do we see from this short verse? We see that knowledge, wisdom, and instruction are here used synonymously. There will be places where some distinction is helpful, but there are many places like this verse where it's not particularly helpful. These aren't being used in technical ways. These are being used for the sake of a beautiful um, presentation. How bland would it be if you had the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise knowledge and knowledge. So you've got a diversity there. Um, of speech, but the same fundamental concepts at play. Continuing with the editors, this thought appears throughout the book, and they give us a whole number of references there, especially in the portions contributed by Solomon. In the Proverbs that the men of Hezekiah collected, that's chapters 25 through 29. More on this in a minute. The fear of the Lord is not the central theme. Instead, this portion of the collection focuses on the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, preparing young men for service in the royal court. In Proverbs, wisdom is an attribute of God and of his people. God alone can give wisdom. It is his great gift to his people. Wisdom is frequently portrayed as a woman, a dear mother or beloved bride. And then you can say, we'll we'll look at this section that the editors have penned for, supposed remnants of goddess worship. Continuing on, this feminine imagery does not prevent Solomon from describing wisdom as God's quote-unquote master workman, who is God the Son, begotten in eternity and working with the Father at creation. All right, so in Hebrew, uh, in English, we don't have this feminine, masculine, neuter nouns like in other languages we do. And in Hebrew, a, the feminine noun for wisdom is kokma. And it, when translated into the Septuagint, it's Sophia. And both of these are feminine. So from that, the author will play uh, wisdom as feminine in many places, but also will play or use wisdom as masculine. We just saw a workman, for example. Okay, so it doesn't. Let's not get hung up on feminine or masculine. That's not really the point. The author is going to employ these motifs in order to make his rhetorical point hit home in order to make his argument make sense. So, for example, in the first nine chapters, he's going to depict for us wisdom primarily in a feminine way, and at various points, he's going to, and that's to attract who? His son to whom he's speaking? <laughs> and then he's going, to, he's going to contrast this woman who is wisdom in body with the wisdom who is, with, excuse me, with the woman who is the antithesis to wisdom, the seductress that leads to foolishness. 
That was the part of the intro where there's this sultry woman caressing the doorframe. She winks and smiles. So in chapters 1 through 9, we're going to see this theme recur a couple of times where you've got the woman of God who he should be attracted to and the seductress who's going to lead him away from God into death who Solomon wants him to not be attracted to. But elsewhere in Scripture, too, and we'll have opportunity to touch on this to some detail. Um, St. Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians, the early chapters, is a beautiful treatment of wisdom there. But he specifically calls Christ the wisdom of God. And Jesus refers to himself in various points also as uh, being wisdom or, for example, he says, the generation that came um, with the Queen of Sheba to see Solomon will rise up against, will rise up in judgment against this present generation. So the generation back in um, the 9th century BC will rise up at the judgment against the generation in the 1st century BC because they all clamored and went as far as they could to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But you all won't hear my wisdom here a greater than Solomon is. So Jesus describing himself as the wisest of all, even wiser than Solomon. Um, Elsewhere, Jesus comments, um, wisdom is known by her children. Do you remember that? That proverbial statement. And it has a broader truth. I like to use it all the time. It's a cleaner way of saying, I told you so. Uh, (laughs) But Jesus applies this directly to himself. And so, um, what, what then do we see? That wisdom has a Christological center. And this is even in something like, even though it's kind of hidden to us by way of translation, uh, the prologue to John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and was God. That word is logos, from, that's the Greek, from which also the root we get logic or comprehension. So many commentators, and I'm kind of one of those, like to think, at least have that part of the semantic domain, that when the word becomes flesh, it's something closer to the meaning becomes flesh. We can get into some deep philosophy and theology on that point, but it's to say that without the meaning become flesh, there is no meaning. Boy, who else says that? Solomon, just in a different book. In fact, that's how he begins Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or more directly, meaninglessness of meaninglessness, all is meaninglessness. And it's if you don't have like that objective frame that is Christ, that is the meaning, the logic, the logos, the word then everything is subjective and lost, fractured, fragmented, incoherent. There's nothing that coheres. It only coheres in he who is the meaning, you see? All right, so we won't go any deeper than that, even though I'd always love to. One of my favorite thoughts to have after a, after a bourbon or two. <laughs> All right, so... Um, What we want to see then at this point is we want to see that the revelation of God 
in Christ Jesus is the revelation of wisdom. He is wisdom himself, and he is wisdom embodied in human flesh. Now, with all that being said, there's also a content to that wisdom. And that's what's going to be unfolded here for us. Indeed, that's what's unfolded throughout all the scriptures, is the content of that wisdom of God. Okay, the content of who God is in Christ Jesus. And thus to be conformed into his image, to be conformed into his wisdom, is the project. Behold, I am making present tense, all things new. That's the project we're all engaged in. We are all being made wise. Made like Christ. Okay, so a little further then. Um, That will be the last paragraph here on page 995. Though wisdom and righteousness stand together only in one proverb, 1031, the book equates wise people with the righteous. As a result, these proverbs are always more than practical advice on proper morals. And I think that that's the key. At least, at least for me it was important as I was preparing for this. Um, the proverbs are more than practical advice. And if we're just going there to, hey, I could use a little practical advice. I could use a little confirmation bias. Uh, we're not really going into the proverbs then with the right, the right heart, the right headspace. Continuing with the editors, they illustrate the faith and life of one made righteous through faith in the Lord, the giver of wisdom. For more on biblical wisdom, you can see 775 and following. All right. We may return to some of the themes in these pages. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll find time to f- see what um, Luther has to say. Um, you can look at the types of the Proverbs as well. But I don't want to conquer any of that today. And the challenges will present themselves to us, as will the blessings. Perhaps what I will do for you is... um, Bear with me one minute. I thought I saw a reference to that. 97. Yeah, that'd be the place to do it. So, on page 997 under the heading Challenges for Readers. And again, if you don't have a study Bible, you should get one, but I'll try to make it clear anyway so it's not laborious to you. Um, So, under the Challenges for Readers, that subheading, if you go down one to the third full paragraph, you're going to see authorship there in italics, authorship. Some critics regard attribution of authorship to Solomon as only honorary. They have proposed late dates for the writing of Proverbs after Israel returned from exile. However, according to the book itself, several authors wrote or compiled Proverbs from the 10th century to about the 7th century BC. Studies of the vocabulary, thought, and expression in the sections attributed to Solomon show great unity. Also, sections attributed to other authors are distinct in these features. These findings bear out what the book itself states about authorship, and that's the key. We as Lutherans aren't going to depart from what the book itself says. 
The dates and authorship proposed by critics stem from their mistrust of biblical history rather than the book's content. Because the text addresses Solomon's, now in quotes, son, likely Rehoboam, the earliest date Solomon could have written his portion is circa 971 B.C. The latest Solomon could have written is 931 B.C. when his reign ended. These dates provide the biblical boundaries for Solomon's work. The reign of Hezekiah, dated 715 to 686 B.C., provides a second important boundary for the book's composition. All right, let me um, give you just a little more specificity here from Steinman. And if you want to jot this down, if you're a detailed-oriented person, great. If you don't, I'll make it quick here. All right. So, the text itself, the first main section, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22, verse 16. So, 22 chapters, and the vast majority, are written and compiled by Solomon himself. And that dating goes um, to 971 through 941 B.C. Now, what comes next, 22, chapter 22, verse 17, through chapter 24, verse 34. So that's roughly, you know, two and a half, three chapters, just depending on how you're counting, is these are authored by other wise people but Solomon himself is the one who has taken these and writing them down. He's just attrib- he's saying, look, this didn't come from me, but this is great stuff, and I want it included. Okay, so again, roughly one, chapter one through the middle of 22, is Solomon's own ideas written by him, and then the middle of 22 through uh, 24. Solomon's got a collection of wise people that he wants included with his own Proverbs. So far, so good. Okay. Then chapters 25 through 29, these are the, child's, uh, the chapters that are compiled by Hezekiah and his men. These are sayings of Solomon that they presume to find in scattered documents around the temple after his death. It's possible that some of these are oral and have been passed down and attributed to him, whatever. But the bottom line is they compile them. They say these are all of Solomon. They're compiled. uh, They're included. That's chapters 25 through 29. All right. Chapter 30 is going to be written by a man named Augur, A-G-U-R, and that's attributed to him by the text itself. His dating roughly is to the 7th century. So he seems to be a pretty smart guy. I mean, you know, that's saying something. If your own wisdom is included in a book written by Solomon, sharp and faithful guy, Augur. Likewise, Lemuel, and of course, um, there is a theory that this is, uh, and or his mother, and or his mother. That's why the study Bible mentions Lemuel's mother. And that's chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. These two would date later. They would date from 715 to 609. And then finally, chapter 31, 10 through 31, nobody knows for sure. It's an unknown 
author. And what we see in that theme is we tie back in, like inclusio style, we tie back into the beginning with the themes of the father to the son and the two women. So we have a nod to those themes at the end. So quite obviously an author saying, all of this flows beautifully together. Let's put the capstone on it. Let's put this inclusio on it. Now we have a unit of wisdom. All right, so that in essence is what, is what the book is comprised of. So for the first 22 chapters, we're going to be looking at just pure written by Solomon and compiled by Solomon. And I'll let you know as we progress along uh, where, uh, where we shift then. Page 998 gives you an extended outline. I am not going to bore you by going through all that. Because we're going to walk through it. <laughs> so, no need to go through this. But, but you can see how it is organized as a number of addresses. Um, maybe what I'll do is, uh, let me pause and see if you have any questions or any comments on anything I've said here before. If there's anything, just pause and sip coffee. If there's anything burning, please. Uh, it seems that the, uh, the world says uh, the beginning of wisdom is, uh, or rather, the beginning of foolishness is the fear of the Lord, it seems like, mm-hmm. in the culture. Yeah, exactly. It turns it on its head completely. We live in a time where that antithesis is, is extremely stark and is, seems to be becoming increasingly stark. It's easier for us. It's easier for us than um, in a place where this is subtle. In a, in a culture, a time, place, culture where everything is ostensibly Christian, it's really hard to parse this out. So... In that sense, we should count our blessings to, to live in, in, in an increasingly foolish place that is defining itself over and against. Because really, if you look at Western civilization, its foundations are Christian. Its foundations are biblical. And so insofar as they're counter the West, they're counter Christianity. And so we can see these things more starkly than maybe we would have even 100 years ago. All right. Let me then, let me then uh, just, since we have a couple minutes left, uh, part with these major words in terms of theme. Again, what we're going to see is that just like all the texts of Scripture, this text is also going to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused if we have eyes to see. We're going to see his wisdom, Christ, and all the content of that wisdom coming as a gift from God to his people. Largely, the presupposition of Proverbs is that he's writing to God's people. He's writing to us as Christians by distant extension. Okay, so we're going to see a Christ-centered, gospel-rich text, wisdom as the gift of God. Next, we are going to see faith. We're going to see faith, um, as we saw earlier, described as fear. But this relationship with God and this openness to him, this humility before him, that whatever he says we would first seek to believe and then come to understand, that's going to be foundational for growing in wisdom. One of my favorite Augustine quotes ever. I quote it all the time. where he says, um, just this thing, we must believe in order to understand. How do we commonly think of it? Exactly the opposite. I've got to understand this, and then if I understand it and it's palatable to me, well, then I guess I'll believe it. 
but it's incumbent upon you to prove it to me. And this is man enthroned on his own heart, sitting in judgment over God. So, crede ut intelegas, believe in order to understand. You have to receive the wisdom of God, and even if it strikes you as abject nonsense, you humble yourself and believe it, and lo and behold, you will come to understand it. That's not just Augustine's insight, but really, frankly, our Lord's and St. Paul's as well. So, faith and sonship, humili- uh, um, humbling ourselves, humiliating ourselves in the technical sense, humbling ourselves to uh, receive this wisdom from God is going to be thoroughgoing throughout the text. And then, one other thing to keep in mind is the Proverbs. Sometimes we look at this like, okay, so if I get the Proverbs, I'm getting the instructions, and if I get the instructions and do the instructions, everything's going to get better. So, these are, these are pragmatic solutions to the problems I face. That may in fact be the case from time to time, but that's not what they're for. And in many cases, following the Proverbs, will, is like, it's likely to land you in more trouble. It's likely to make things harder for you. You're going to be going against the grain of yourself, the world, and the devil. So one thing to keep in mind as we read the Proverbs is God's not giving them so like, hey, here's how to fix everything in your life and live your best life now which is frequently, if not in those stark of terms, how we look at the Proverbs, like, hey, I want this to make things better. The Proverbs aren't given for happiness, but for holiness. And so the way of wisdom is the way of holiness. Um, in fact, what we see frequently is that the fool is short-sighted in specifically this way. He is only looking at how he can improve his lot in this life. That's it. All he can see is this life, And if it doesn't make sense in this life, it must be foolish. And thus he deludes and blinds himself to all the wisdom that says, hey, this life isn't anything. This life isn't even the first chapter. It's the preface. So the fool is the one who is short-sighted, cares only about this life and its happiness. The wise is the one who looks through this life into eternity with the wisdom of God. Those are maybe three of the major themes that we'll continue to return to um, as we dig into the text itself, beginning next week. The Lord be with you.